Tired of hearing the same thing over and over again? Frustrated with the social, political, and professional landscape of your community? If so, you're in the right place. We can tackle any issue or conversation if we approach life with the Reasonable Person Standard. What's the Reasonable Person Standard, you ask? A reasonable person approaches life with average care, skill, and judgment and is willing to have respectful conversations with people who hold opposing views. Are you that person? And now, Dr. Bob and Dr. T. Hey, welcome everybody. This is Dr. Bob and Dr. Teresa Habib, a.k.a. Dr. T. So welcome to Season 2 of the Reasonable Person Standard. And you'll notice it's with Dr. Bob and Dr. T. Um, I thought we'd start at the new year with a new kind of concept, a new framework moving forward where, you know, the... The Reasonable Person Standard podcast um, really derived from conversations that I would have regularly with my wife, Teresa, and uh, we decided like, like we want to capture some of those thoughts and ideas and even the, the back and forth sort of chat, discussion, discourse, what have you. And so I'm very excited and uh, appreciative and blessed to have my amazing wife here, uh, Teresa Habib, a.k.a. Dr. T. Hey, welcome to the show, Dr. T. Well, thank you for having me. This is going to be fun. Absolutely. This is the crazy train. Uh, and so we're excited to, to move forward. So today, you know, we're going to tackle this big topic of the Second Amendment. And it's polarizing. It's divisive. It's all these things. Um, you know, some, some would even say it's like one of the most politically charged uh, conversations uh, right now. And so we just want to talk about it. We're going to just talk about some of our ideas. We've done some 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 research. We've, we've looked at data, all kinds of things. And so I think it's important for all of us to at least get a, some basic concept of the context of the Second Amendment. And here's the, the verbiage from the Constitution. So it says, A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. So T, when it, you know, we're talking about the right of the people to keep and bear arms. You know, Can you break that down for us, like in your idea? Like, what is that layman term? Well, considering I'm not a scholar on the Constitution, but the Second Amendment... I operate under the assumption that that means I can legally own a gun to protect myself and my loved ones, and the government has no no place to come in and remove that right. Yeah, I agree. So, T, you mentioned you know neither of us are are law scholars, certainly not constitutional scholars, and so I wanted to bring forward some ideas uh, by Nelson Lund, who's a professor at George Mason University School of Law, and Adam Winkler, who's a professor of law at the University of California Law School. And I'm going to sort of paraphrase some of the ideas, right? So when you think about these modern debates um, that the Second Amendment has focused on, really, does it protect a private right of individuals to keep and bear arms or a right that can be exercised only through militia like mm-hmm. the National Guard? And so they say that basically, you know, we know that a whole bunch of things have changed since the late 1700s, whereas the traditional militia is no longer a thing. And state-based militia organizations were eventually incorporated into the federal military structure. They went on to say that the 18th century civilians routinely kept at home the very same weapons they would need if called to serve in the militia, while modern soldiers, meaning today, are equipped with weapons that differ significantly from those generally thought appropriate for civilian uses. Mm -hmm. Civilians no longer expect to use their household weapons for militia duty, and although they still keep and bear arms to defend against common criminals, there's other things they can use, you know, weapons for like hunting and other forms of, of recreation. So we think about you know, 1700s, I may have a handgun, but that was the gun I used when I went to fight in the militia. Um, and nowadays, 
you know, how, how do you think that the differentiation between like military weapons and the personal weapons sort of comes into play? How's that conversation sitting with you? It's almost like there was this untold uh, unfolding of you know, arms and um, what that looks like. So if you and I, you know, as veterans, we would never even think to bring home our M16s, <laughs> you know, to the household. Yeah. And it's just an understanding. And obviously, uh, regulations forbade it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when you think of, I, I think of this, like I, while I want to have the right and the ability to own any type of weapon I'd like, I have to ask myself, do I really need a bazooka? So these guys, these law professors, went on to say that the principle that reasonable regulations are consistent with the Second Amendment has been affirmed throughout American history. Ever since the first cases challenging gun controls for violating the Second Amendment or similar provisions in state constitutions, courts have repeatedly held that the reasonable gun laws, those that don't completely deny access to guns by law-abiding citizens, people, are constitutionally permissible. And so for 150 years, this was the settled law of the land until this case uh, about Heller, the District of Columbia versus Heller. And I'll tell you this, though. So, so really, until recently, the judiciary treated the Second Amendment almost as a dead letter, right? They didn't want to really touch it, or it was, it was a done deal. In the District of Columbia versus Heller, this was 2008, the Supreme Court invalidated a federal law that forbade nearly all citizens from possessing handguns in the nation's capital. This was a five to four majority ruled that the D.C. ban on handgun possession violated the Second Amendment right because it prohibited an entire class of arms that was favored for the lawful purpose of self-defense in the home. And it also found that the requirement that lawful firearms be disassembled or bound by a trigger lock virtually made it impossible for citizens to effectively use those arms for the core lawful purpose of self-defense, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. you, know, you think about these laws. So here's, here's a case where you know D.C. came and said, hey, we want to prohibit people from owning these weapons in the D- District of Columbia. But as it turned out, you know, the, the, the highest court sort of turned that down. So thought, any thoughts on like the differentiation here between, um, you know, here's, a, here, here's where, where the law was intended or the spirit of this new legislation was saying, hey, we really want to attack gun control because of, of the violence that's happening. And then they what it end up is they end up hurting the average citizen way more than it than it if, than it would eventually impact you know someone that was going to use a gun uh, to commit right. a crime. But you'd have to really look look at the data on that, and I don't think we're going to ever come to an end of the battle. We're going to have both sides trying to get to protect what they think is the best thing for everybody. Yeah, that's a great point. So I'm glad you mentioned the data piece. Uh, according to Pew Research Center in 2019. This is basically what they, they've said. So guns are, we know that guns are deeply ingrained in our society, mm-hmm. right? The Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution gives Americans the right to bear arms. And as it turns out, 3 in 10, you know, 30% of American adults personally own a gun. And as of that, most of those gun owners say that the right to own firearms is essential to their own personal sense of freedom. So I want to unpack that just a little bit. So while men and women are about equally likely to cite personal protection as the major reason they own a gun, women are more likely than men to cite protection as the only reason. That's about 20%, 27% of women versus 8% of men say that the reason they own the gun is for personal protection. Mm-hmm. Are you surprised by that in any way? I'm not at all surprised. And it brings to mind the historically men did the hunting. So they would have the long guns and they would have rifles. I mean, I remember going to high school and you know, our farmer boys had guns in their, you know, that back window of their pickup truck. And that was a normal, a normal sight, a normal acceptance of what the guns were for, is for hunting. And 
culture has changed. Women are, you know, victimized and they don't want to be victimized and be targets of crime. So of course, they're going to want to protect themselves. So any legislation moving forward could potentially hurt the women that use weapons or guns lawfully to protect themselves. Sure can. Yeah, that's a that's a big deal, I think. So it's also important to note that at the same time, gun violence, meaning from like big city murders to mass shootings, has spurred a lot of debate in Congress mm-hmm. and state legislators over proposals to limit Americans' access to firearms. Counting murders and suicides, nearly 40,000 people died of gun-related violence in the United States in 2017. That's a pretty significant number there. So I wanted to just talk a little bit about this, this the narrative, right, that you hear a lot of, well, hey, if we remove guns from our population, then, you know, the number of mass shootings is going to go down or, right. uh, you, you know, if in just in general, whether it's mass shootings or other types of violence, you know, what does that actually look like? And so some data, again, from the Pew Research Center asks basically, so what's the percentage, percentage of people who would say if more Americans owned guns, there would be more, less, or no difference in crime? And so interesting to note that the country is split 30, 30, you know, a third, a third, and a third. So a third of the country says that if more Americans owned guns, there would actually be more crime. Okay, that's one statistic. Another third of the population says if more Americans owned guns, there'd be no difference in crime whatsoever. And then the last third, who basically says the percentage of Americans, if they if that increased, there would be actually less crime. And so mm-hmm. this whole narrative I keep hearing about, oh, you know, the American people have spoken and they want less guns because, you know, if we have fewer guns, then that means less violence and, and less crime. And, and the data just actually doesn't support that. Mm-hmm. And then the lastly part of that is, the percentage of people who say if it was harder for people to legally obtain guns in the U.S., there would be fewer, no difference, or more mass shootings. And uh, what what do you think the people said? I would I would guess that they're split on that as well. Am I right? You are right. And actually, Yay, ding, I ding, ding. I wouldn't have guessed that. Ah. I would have guessed that based on the narrative we're hearing. You know, the narrative I hear like in the news a lot is like, oh, everybody, you know, like the majority of our country says that we need to make it harder to own guns because that's going to decrease the number of mass shootings. Well, as it turns out, the data just doesn't support that narrative. In this case, you're right, T. The data says that, you know, the country is sort of, you know, blocked down the middle 50%. So 40% of the people say it would, you know, we would have fewer mass shootings if we made it harder to get guns. 46% uh, said it would have no difference whatsoever. And actually 6% say we would have more mass shootings if it was harder to legally obtain guns. So interesting data there. This talk of data, uh, as it turns out, you know, in just, just last month, there's this uh, been new legislation that's been proposed. It's called H.R. 127. It was, mm-hmm. it, it was uh, introduced at the beginning of January. Interesting enough that uh, the Congress website says that the summary is still in process. So they haven't even summarized it yet. But I, we put out all the data points. And a couple things I want to mention. One is that it, it's basically suggesting that the the Attorney General, through the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, will establish a system for licensing the possession of firearms or ammunition in the U.S. So meaning like this sort of federal uh, licensing procedure, taking that away from the states. And within that, they're saying that they, the Attorney General shall establish and maintain a database uh, for all the people um, that have registered firearms. And that's not you know, overly concerning or alarming to me. But what is interesting is that what it says is the attorney general shall make the contents of the database accessible to all federal, state, and local law enforcement authorities, all branches of the United States Armed Forces, and all all state and local governments, and to all members of the public. 
which includes the make and model, the serial number of the firearm, the identity of the owner, the date it was purchased, where the firearm is, and will be stored. So what do you think of that, like this national database that's going to keep all this information and it's open to the public? <laughs> you got to be crazy. That's, I almost feel like that's an invasion of privacy. Uh, uh, yeah, a little bit, right? <laughs> I mean, where else in the in common sense world do you share that kind of information with the general public? Because the way I see it, if, our, you know, say you have a neighbor that has an arsenal legally, has this arsenal of handguns and collections and whatnot, and that's made public, then that neighbor becomes subjected to activists that don't approve of that way of life. And then we've opened up this door to, you know, hostility so we're putting ourselves out there to be to be recipients of of different viewpoints and hostility because all of our information is made public yeah that's a good point because right now we choose what information like that we, we we put out there right i see i see some neighbors have stickers on their doors that say hey i'm a legally you know mm-hmm. uh lawfully own a gun owner and that's their choice but given I'm, my concern is that given today's sort of uh you know our our, our population's desire to mm. uh aggressively and vehemently protest things that they don't agree with you know if if you happen to live in a community that's anti-gun and in general and you have three or four homes in that subdivision that are gun owners and this information is publicly out there i think you do open them up to a level of scrutiny that that may not be necessarily warranted yeah that's interesting so the other part of the legislation that i'm also intrigued by is under licensing it says you're going to go through this process you'll apply for this federal license right uh and then part of that is that you're going to have to undergo a psychological evaluation and conduct it with all these things. And beyond that, what's interesting is that it says, so as part of the evaluation, the licensed psychologist must interview any spouse of the individual, any former spouse of the individual, and at least two other people who are a member of the family or an associate of the individual to further determine the state of the mental, emotional, and relational mm-hmm. stability of the individual in relation to firearms. So here, here's saying yeah. is not only you have to get a license, but now we're going to basically interview um, anybody in your circle of trust to see what, to, in order to really generalize your mental stability. Any thoughts on that? Well, first of all, people in your circle may not necessarily be psychologists to be able to correctly assess your mental state. And if there's animosity and hurt feelings going along the way, then you're, you're going to be denied your right to own a weapon because an ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend thinks you're an idiot and they hate you and they'll do anything they can to hurt you. Yeah. I think, I think it's like I think that we're going to be getting into some very subjective, uh, very subjective, right areas. Right. And to be so, imagine you're being denied a license uh, to to get this firearm because merely because your ex uh, significant other, you know, gives you a bad rap just out of spite. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, how would you? How do you legislate people's feelings on other people? How is that? How is that even possible? That's actually a great podcast idea, right? What? Legis- legislating people's feelings. Oh right? boy, you can't do let's it. do it. So. And the last part of the legislation that's interesting is this insurance piece. So it says that now if you're going to own a weapon, you have to have uh, insurance. And it's, so the, wor- the wording here is very awkward, but I'm going to just go with it. So you know, they'll issue the license to any person who has applied for a license pursuant to those things that we just talked about and has paid the attorney general the fee specified above. Uh, and they have a policy that ensures the person against liability for losses and damages resulting from the use of any firearm mm. by the person. And so, as it turns out, they actually they actually tell you what the fee is. The fee is eight hundred bucks. So, Ouch. Yeah, so I'm just telling you the okay. reason the reasonable person here. Yeah, you got something. I do got something. The people. Okay, <laughs> this legislation will purpose is is almost like targeted at 
um, I mean, how to put this, do lower income who may live in more crime prone areas and you're making defensing, defending themselves more difficult by putting this money tag on it, these background checks on it, these, uh, you know, poly- these you know, hurdles, if you will. And mm-hmm. it's going to make it more difficult for people who need the protection not to be able to get it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, you know, I'm a firm believer that the more restrictions you put on things, the less likely people will be successful. So with that, if you're, you know, the, the, let's say the average middle class person, now you're going to charge them 800 bucks for every weapon they own just to have this license or this insurance. That's, that doesn't seem reasonable to me. That's like, mm-mm. you know, I, I don't know. So we're going to move on to some data. Right, so now we've heard like the historical context of what the Second Amendment is, where it came from, and kind of how it's landed on our doorstep today. We looked at you know a general population of people, and then we looked at this new legislation now based on that Second Amendment. And so I wanted to really know if does the data support you know the narratives that are happening or support like legislation like this. And so we looked into the U.S. Department of Justice, the Office of Justice Programs Bureau of Justice Statistics. Well, that's a mouthful. Sounds official. <clears throat> yeah, but it's, I mean, this is, this is your government telling you this information. So this, this data is based on uh, case studies in 2016 of over 300,000 convicted felons. So that's about uh, 30% of the imprisoned population of our country. And so here's some data, and then I'm going to put it in perspective for you. So hang in there. So oh, of those cases... Uh, about 21% of all state and federal convicts had possessed or carried a firearm when they committed the offense for which they were serving time in prison. So again, we're not talking about every criminal. We're talking about 20% of this population had a weapon at the time that this that this crime was committed. So that, that takes that number down uh, from about 1.2 million people in prison down, you know, pretty significantly. You figure you figure twenty percent of that population. That's a pretty you're roughly, you know, two or three hundred thousand people. So that's a pretty small population. So among these, more than half either had stolen the weapon, they found it at the scene of the crime, or obtained it off the street from the underground market. So now we've taken that population and whittled it down even more, where half of those people uh, you know, got their weapons in some illegal fashion. And so you know, this, this sort of context of, well, let's go after the folks that purchase guns legally from stores and dealers. Well, as it turned out, only about 1.3% of the prisoners or these convicts obtained a gun from a retail store and used it during their offense. That's tiny. That's a tiny population. And then it's like, oh, well, what about the whole uh, the gun show loophole, mm-hmm. right? Oh, let's talk about that. Less than 1%, so 0.8% obtained it. Uh, at a gun show. So you had this small population already. Only 20% of convicts actually had a weapon on their possession at the time. And we'll talk about how many used them, but only 20%. And out of that, less than 2% got those weapons through some legal avenue. So we're talking about you know, imposing legislation that would impact this entire population, 30% of our population, that's really intended to target this 2% of the convicted felon population. So there's, right. a, there's a disconnect here in the data. All right, so let's put this in perspective because the numbers sometimes get confusing. So data shows that approximately 0.7% of the American population is currently imprisoned. So with that, coupled with the data I just told you, this is what it would look like in your community. Let's say your community had 10,000 people in it. Approximately 700 people of those would be imprisoned. From that imprisoned 700... Only 21% of them possessed a gun while committing the crime. That's only 147 people. Now, out of that 147 people, only 2.1% of them purchased those guns 
either at a retail store or at a gun show. That's only 31 people. That's less than one-tenth of a percent, and the rest obtain their guns illegally. So most proposals seeking to restrict gun ownership, in my opinion, in some way for those looking to purchase guns legally, will really impact the 3,000 law-abiding citizens in that same community. And of course, inherently, yes, the 31 people that committed a crime while in possession of a weapon and obtained that weapon legally. So the narrative that supports the idea that tighter gun laws will help diminish gun-related crimes is just not supported by the data. Sure, it could help mitigate crimes committed by those 31 people, but it really impacts the 3,000 other people who are law-abiding citizens much more. So how does that how does that sit to you? We're going to spend all this time on rules and regulations that's really going to impact a, right. a group of people that don't commit these crimes anyways. You know, as we have these discussions or try to find the arguments or the holes in the logic and the you know, the way, the outlook of of where you're coming from and the 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 small percentage of people that are affected by gun crimes and it's sad. So what do you say to them? when you argue against legislation that could have or will protect them? Well, that's a great question. I, I think, for me, any death is tragic. And it seems more tragic when it comes as a result of gun violence, right? A gun that was utilized in, a, in the, the commission of a crime. And, you know, losing someone is terrible. But what I will tell you is that the data tells us, this is not emotion, the data tells us that the majority of people who commit crimes and have a gun in their possession at the time of that crime okay. obtain those weapons illegally. illegally. So then the part, the focus should be on the underground, you know, the transfer of weapons illegally. Somehow task force should be, I think there are, they already are in place, but you don't hear about it. The task force that addresses underground um, dark alley you know, gun sales. That's where the effort should be made. That's where legislation and and policies should be. That's where money should go. It should go into actual finding the, you know, fixing the problem, which isn't legal purchases. It's the illegal element. Absolutely. And I I think that, you know what, if if somebody is going, if someone has the intent to go commit a crime Mm -hmm. with a weapon, do you really think they're going to take the time to, to find a gun the legal way, meaning go fill out the background checks, get a psychological evaluation. Yeah. If you want to get a gun, you're going to go get a gun. It's the same thing. And if you're going to commit a crime, you're going to do it whether the law says you can or can't. And honestly, this is the argument I've been having with friends and, and co- acquaintances that are anti-gun. I've been having this argument and bringing that up. I'm like, if they if somebody, if you want to go kill somebody, you will be able to find a gun and do it. No amount of laws and rules and regulations are going to stop you because bad people are bad people. You know what I mean? Absolutely, it's crazy, right? You're gonna if you're gonna break the law and you mean it, or you're you're you like sort of predisposed to do. You're yeah. going to do it. You will find a way. And and any law that says, oh, you gotta don't forget to pay your eight hundred dollar insurance to yeah, get that gun. That's not it's, it's 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 especially so. Yes, that's that's just human nature. But now we're again the data proves that this is a a minuscule percentage of our population so, that is that commits crimes with weapons. That actually use them and that have pertained them and have obtained them legally. So it's it's a total farce in logic. So again, the reasonable person standard is going to look at this data and say, what does the data support? And let's build legislation that's going to attack the things that are going to have the most impact. Lastly, from a data perspective, I'm going to say this: that you know, you, so even even if all these people, you had these people that had committed crimes and had a weapon with them at the time, over half of them, uh, it didn't even fire. No, they didn't even fire it. Right. So the statistics are. 
27% of that that of that 20%. Again, we're getting pretty small here. Yeah. 27% of the 20% of people that had guns killed somebody with that weapon. Tragic. Another 12% actually just injured somebody. And uh 54% didn't even fire their weapon at all, right? So again, this whole narrative about yep. let's 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 attack the the lawful process of how to get a weapon because it's creating so much damage as at the day again the data just does not support it makes you wonder what what's what's the motivation behind legislation like this what's motivating what's driving that train i don't know and i'm going to i'm going to rely on our reasonable people out there to figure that out so so folks look you know use data use information don't mm-hmm. necessarily let your emotions drive what you do but the reasonable person is going to look at this information and make a, 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 a an educated decision about how they they feel or how they sit on on this particular divisive topic so uh, lastly I want to say that um, you know in honor of one of our good friends dr. Gary Oster uh, who just recently passed away he was a great scholar and innovator uh, in the world of education just really loved um, serving his community this podcast um, is in tribute and yes. memoriam to Dr. Gary Oster. So Amen. that's all the time we have for now. Peace out. All Dr. Right. T has been a great pleasure. See you soon. Thank you for joining today's conversation with Dr. Bob and Dr. T. Be sure to check out what they'll tackle next at www.bobhabib.net and healing.com. Our music was performed by Kevin McLeod and this podcast series is produced by Jam Studios. Most importantly, take care of yourself and one another and always treat people with dignity and respect. And remember, you can tackle any issue or conversation if you approach life with the reasonable person standard.